This is your moment. Your moment to move forward and make progress. It's time to see where an education can take you. For over 130 years, Strayer University has been at the forefront of change, offering programs that help students like you get ahead and stay ahead, so you can keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by Chef. Hello there, Typology friends. Welcome to this week's episode. It's a great one. Before we jump into it, though, I want to remind you that Typology has launched a Patreon campaign. If you're not familiar with it, Patreon is a way for you to support content you love, like Typology, on a monthly basis. For as little as a dollar a month, you can partner with us to help us cover the costs of stuff like equipment upgrades or studio time, post-production editing, the fees that we have to pay for licensing music, and quite frankly, the 20 to 25 man hours per week that it takes us to produce each episode of Typology. All you have to do is go to www.patreon.com forward slash typology. That's Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash typology, T-Y-P-O-L-O-G-Y, and select the level at which you want to support this show And you will not only receive our undying love and gratitude, you also will get a bunch of great bonus content as well. And I'm telling you, even $1 per month is a huge help. So now it's time for our show. Last week, I had an amazing conversation with my friend, Father Richard Rohr, a renowned Enneagram expert, Franciscan priest, executive director of the Center for Action and Contemplation in Albuquerque, New Mexico. And this week on Typology, I continue that conversation with Father Richard Rohr. Let's get to it. So for you, uh, on a daily basis, because I think it's very easy to think about the Enneagram in the abstract or the theoretical, I mean, on a daily basis, uh, in your own life personally, and in your work as a spiritual director working with individuals, like, how do I get up in the morning and immediately begin to use the Enneagram as a framework or a blueprint for my own spiritual formation? Well, here's where, in my limited experience, I see it work best. If it can eventually reside in the back of your head, I'm, again, not a brain scientist, so I don't really know what's in the back of my head. But but what I mean is it can't be in the forefront of consciousness that everybody you see, you're immediately typing them. Now, you tend to go through that for the first six months after you learn it, but you got to lose that. Because then it, it's overreach, it's overkill, it's it's now you seeking control, which is ego, you know, instead of letting go of control. So when it can quietly reside in the back of your head, as it were, as an ancillary tool, as something that, oh, this might be helpful now at this point in the conversation, uh, maybe just for me and how I talk to this person, 
But sometimes, and when people are with me in counseling or spiritual direction, then I can more willingly do it. I think I did it twice this week, where someone was coming to talk to me about a major issue, and maybe two-thirds through the hour, I said, um, do you happen to know your Enneagram number? <laughs> and both of them did. I was grateful. And uh, I said, let's unpackage that a little bit in terms of what you're telling me is your dilemma. And in the two cases I worked with this week, I can't, I mean, I only talked 10 more minutes and those people left very satisfied thinking Richard was far wiser than he really is. But it's wisdom that in part I've come to through mastering the Enneagram. It really is a tool for the reading of the soul. In just a minute, I asked Richard if he would give a word of encouragement and caution to each of the nine Enneagram types as they go about doing their spiritual work of becoming their truest and best selves. Before I do, however, let me remind you that the sponsor of Typology is Talkspace, the online therapy company that lets you choose from over 1,500 licensed therapists. You can get matched with your perfect therapist who can put you on the path to becoming your best and truest self and to a happier life. For a special offer for our listeners, visit Talkspace.com forward slash typology. That's Talkspace, T-A-L-K-S-P-A-C-E dot com forward slash typology, T-Y-P-O-L-O-G-Y. And now... Let's get back to my conversation with Richard Roy. Let's, um, because we have so many uh, new folks, I'd love to just give some practical Enneagram wisdom. If, if in a sentence or two, and we'll just maybe start at twos and work through triads for a second, just a sentence or two on a, a word of encouragement and a word of warning or a holy warning, you know, uh, spoken with compassion. Um, to each of those types, and, and particularly in light of what we're living in these days, you know, which is something else. Um, so beginning with twos, just a, a sentence of encouragement, a sentence of warning in their journey as they move toward the true self and, and uh, toward becoming who they truly are. The word of encouragement that comes to mind, and I know it'll sound like I'm feeding their compulsion, but I still would want to say it because it's their best self is I want you to trust your deepest heart, your deepest heart. Now, the word of warning is that what you're accustomed to is your superficial heart. (laughs) And you better learn to distinguish between the two of those. Because your superficial heart, which you've been taught is your heart, usually isn't. (laughs) It's, It's far more the codependent heart, and that's not going to get you where you need to go or where you even want to go. Are you going to go through all of them? Well, you could give a quick one. I, I just think it's so important for people to hear your wisdom, but also these words of encouragement and caution. Um, in, in, because I, these compulsions are, the, the paralytic grip, the, the arthritic grip that they have on our lives is so powerful. And, and this is such a, an important message for, you know, for certainly for Christians, but beyond too. And so, very quickly. Well, I, I, one sentence, if you like. Let me just back up what you said, uh, knowing a lot of people who listen to us or were raised Christian. 
It's no accident that these largely became called the capital sins, that even Christianity was recognizing there's some major traps that human beings get caught in. And all we were doing was naming the seven capital sins and adding two more that were even more invisible. So if you're a three, I first want to affirm you, we just love you for how you get things done, how you make things happen. And I do not want to discourage you from doing that. If I hadn't had threes around me all my life, neither of the two places that I'm credited with founding, the community in Cincinnati, the center here, were 30 years old in two weeks. But I've always had wonderful three administrators who knew how to take my message and make it work. So don't doubt that in yourself. But when you recognize that that's the only way you're getting your energy is by another success, another success, more productivity, more efficiency, more effectiveness, and the praise that comes from it. You better know you are now an addict to motion, an addict to motion. It's the very movement itself that is keeping you going. And it's all the more dangerous if you're doing good things. Like I know a lot of clergy who are threes. And they're doing good things, but they're dying inside because they become so superficial, substituting their human doing for their human being. Four, I've always had a love-hate relationship with fours. I have so many best friends who are fours, actually. But they wear me out emotionally after a while because they're so emotionally subtle that... um, They're always taking you places or groups, places that we aren't ready to go or we don't want to go or we don't even understand. But I want to tell them to trust that creativity, first of all. But don't be surprised at the common pushback that you're going to get. Because you are creative people, you fours. But the rest of us, it takes a little longer to catch up with your right brain, with your musical skill, with your poetry. And so a lot of people resent, frankly, make fun of fours. Um, and I don't think that's deserved. I really don't. I, uh, growing up, uh, clearly a four with a three, and, and now very much a four with a five. And, uh, and I think in part, that was my deep love for Merton. Yeah, he'd be your perfect mentor there. That's right. When I went to Gethsemane, I tell people this sounds like a very fourth thing to have done, but I went and I visited his grave and I uh, was not at all in a melancholy state. I was feeling perfectly fine. I've been around the Enneagram now since the early 90s and I, you know, I can catch myself. I I know when I'm going off on the romantic, you know, uh, self uh, enamored with my own feelings and, you know, whatever. Uh, But when I stood in front of his grave, I wept. I was absolutely overwhelmed with emotion, and partly because I felt, eh, he got me. <laughs> he would have gotten me as a person, you know. Great, let's move to fives. One reason he was so healthy is he had developed clearly both wings, the three and the five, just as you have. Okay, the five, we're jumping over to the head space. I'll tell you, fives took me the longest time to love, and that's because they don't give you a lot of handles on on loving them. The other reason, quite frankly, is so many of my seminary professors 
were fives and sixes. And so many of them, forgive me, God, were such curmudgeons. I, mean, <laughs> I don't know what other word to use, but just, you know, they'd step out and teach you Greek and Latin and poetry, and, and they just felt so inhuman. So it took me a while to see the gift in that because I was so prejudiced against it. But only as I came to find a need for calm, detached advisors, people who uh, didn't jump to conclusions, didn't too quickly identify with dualistic either or, did I come to deeply appreciate the calm detachment that fives bring to so many situations. And what I saw as cold detachment, now in my second half of life, I appreciate as calm and even loving detachment. So um, honor that in yourself and don't let yourself be written off. But do know that one reason a lot of people don't latch on to you is because you, you give them very few handles. <laughs> we look for face, we look for eyes, we look for smile, we look for teeth, I'm afraid. And the five doesn't feel any need to do that more often than not. Mm. It's their gift, but it's their curse. Six, which most of us say is the biggest number. I don't know if you've experienced that, Ian, but years ago when many of us who taught it got together in this particular group, we agreed that we had all found more sixes in our experience than any other number. Some going so far as to say half of the human race. I don't know. But when I see the world's preoccupation with military hardware, how easily we can be seduced by fear. Uh, I'm not sure our own president now is not a counterphobic six. It's just, it's, it's an evil that just goes under all kind of other names. And that's why people can't see it as fear. It looks like patriotism. It looks like loyalty. It looks like obedience. It looks like law and order, which are the very words uh, sixes love to use. A lot of them become clergy because that gave us a platform to, you know, impose law and order. And a lot of them became lawyers, too, for the same reason. I've had a lot of lawyers tell me that personally. It actually, I'm not saying they should, but I know a number of lawyers who left the field after they discovered they were they had become a lawyer because they're a six. They had put their salvation in law. It helped me understand why both Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount and Paul in Romans and Galatians especially do such a tour de force against law. Because so many people think conformity is the same as love. It's going on in our country right now, confusing patriotism with love for your country. <laughs> Those are very different. But it's a common mistake in all religion and all people who don't have much self-knowledge. Um, but especially true of the six. And, of course, as you know, the counterphobic six is so out of touch with his or her fear that they charge into it with bravado. They're known as bullies normally. Uh, and you know who I'm talking about. It's a, uh, it's a country we're all living inside of, you know, and they don't see any problem with that. You know, they think all truth is achieved by charging at it, and people are going to submit. Now, the amazing thing is, if half the human race is six, 
they're darn it, they're half right. <laughs> All the sixes are going to go along with any tyrant who speaks strongly because they that takes away their anxiety. It takes away their self-doubt. Just speak. I have the truth. I'm going to make America great again, and we believe it. Seven. My other favorite number is seven. No, nine, seven, and four. I like all three of those. But as you know, as a one, I tend to see the cup half empty and <laughs> love sevens because uh, our, our center right now, our ED, is a young Notre Dame grad who's a marvelous, brilliant seven. And the good energy he has brought to our entire staff of almost 40 people is phenomenal because he makes the best of everybody's gifts and this is the gift of the seven they see the cup half full and the world needs them for that now i know it can be naive i know it could be ungrounded i know it can therefore sometimes be dangerous that there are things that deserve critique and they are so pollyannish that they can't see it and I've seen sevens make severe mistakes for being too much uncritical, too positive. They almost need their six wing. But I still love sevens. Uh, my own father was a seven, so that's probably one reason. I had a very positive German farmer father. Our mutual friend Rob Bell is a seven. Yes. and. CBS seven, yeah. Oh my gosh, he we I had him on I had him on our very first episode, and it was electric. It was amazing. They can wear you out, but they delight you at the same time. Yeah. The eight, uh, for many people, the most disliked number, and it's unfortunate because they do have a, a high bullshit detector that the world needs. And I know we get tired of them seeing bullshit everywhere, even where it isn't sometimes. And they're almost identified with their bullshit detector and they glory in it. And that undoes them. When they feel a need to expose everything's phoniness, everything's artificiality. So we got to warn them against that. Not everything is phony. Not everything deserves to be exposed by your brilliance. But we still need them as truth speakers. You know, we use that phrase so much today, speaking truth to power. If we didn't have Martin Luther King's, if we didn't have even Fidel Castro's, I know that'll upset some people, but it takes people with that kind of courage to name at least the bit of truth that's there. Maybe they overdo it. Maybe they take it too far. But... Uh, you know, there is a reason that Cuba has the best health care in all of the Western Hemisphere. Huh? So give him credit for that. Mm -hmm. But what he had to do to do that uh, was uh, maybe a little excessive eight energy. Who knows? So still eight energy. Uh, I'm never sure if Martin Luther, since we're about to celebrate him, if he was a one or an eight. What do you think? Do you, have you ever analyzed Luther? Hmm. I think uh, arguably an eight, given his, uh, you know, uh, his what I would call guilt-free delight in the yeah. world. You know, he, the beer drinking, the excess, the, you know, sin boldly and, you know, that kind of energy. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what undid him. You know, I did a conference right before I turned 70 with 
the Lutherans in Switzerland. And the title of the conference was, Was Luther a Mystic? And the consensus among these Lutheran theologians, I wouldn't have dared said it. They said he started as one. He clearly had some early Christ experiences. But then in the second half of his life, his anger so controlled him that he became a dualistic thinker himself. That was their analysis, hmm. which is unfortunate. And of course, we Catholics have to take blame for that because we painted him into a corner where he had to defend himself. And you paint an eight into a corner and they come out with claws bared, as you know. Yeah. But my guess would be Luther was probably an eight. Yeah, it's true. Calvin maybe more a one. Yes, I think I think that's that's probably true. Calvin more a one, yeah. Okay, did I say good and bad on them? Yeah, I guess I did yeah. nine. Well, you know, I didn't develop my speaking of Merton. I only did Merton's Hermitage when the abbot offered it to me after I gave that retreat in nineteen eighty four. I went down there Easter time in 85. And uh, I think it was the first time as a one that I gave myself freedom to develop my nine wing, to just be a hermit for 40 days. I could stop saving the world, making recordings, writing books, preaching all around the world. I could turn off that whole two motor that had to help, 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 help everybody, save everybody. And I think I've been a much healthier person since I've developed my nine wing. The nines are the harmonizers, the peacemakers. They don't need to assert themselves. They don't need to be right like we ones do. It's my salvation. And it's really, as you know, the gift of the nine is often called serenity. I live here in a little hermitage. It's just a little, very tiny little house. Uh, and I have to say, most of my days, unless I allowed myself to be pulled into an angry, judgmental emotion, I'm very serene. And from that place, I can write, I can teach. That's my nine wing. But by the same token, having worked with many nines, I know the inability to take needed initiatives. You know, like friends say, they never call them. They never come over. They never, uh, they just always expect the, the start energy to come from somewhere else. And this makes a lot of people give up on nines, not take nines seriously, and allow them, frankly, to be invisible. I have a brother and a sister who are both nines. And they felt like the forgotten members of the family because they don't insist on being noticed. I know I'm married to a nine, and I, I'm the father of a nine. And of course, they are the sweethearts of the Enneagram. All right, so ones, because now you're going to speak with real authority into the life of ones as being one yourself. You know, I find that almost everyone I've worked with, had. I don't mean to psychologize this too much, but we almost had one or the other parent whose love was very conditional. For me, that was my mother. Now, she loved me deeply. I was her favorite. But I have no doubt that I had to earn and prove myself worthy of being her favorite. So I became a good little boy. And I have seen that pattern so universal in once that we believe there is no grace. There is only meritocracy. That is so in our hard wiring to merit 
uh, favor, friendship, reward. It, this is why I talk about grace and mercy so much, because I have to fight through to that. My natural world is to live in a quid pro quo world of reward and punishment. I'm ashamed to say that, but it's still deep in my hard wiring. And if I hadn't known the gospel, if I hadn't joined the Franciscans, uh, and by the grace of God had some years of prayer, I don't think I'd know that. That, that world of meritocracy, quid pro quo dualistic thinking, re- framing the entire gospel in terms of reward and punishment, is uniquely the worldview of a one. It's, it's almost destroyed the gospel. It really has. You know, you've heard my new dog here. She's just a week with me today. I don't know if you heard her bark. Carmela, you want to show your face on screen? Oh, yes. <laughs> Maybe she'll come. But, you know, I realize how I'm training her these days is by strict reward and punishment. She's a boxer, so she likes to jump up on me and box with me. The first days I was engaging with her, no, no, pushing her away, which she took as fun. I'm boxing with her. It just wasn't working. So there's someone on our staff who's a dog trainer. They said, Richard, it's simple reward and punishment. What she wants from you more than anything else is your affection. Just turn your head like this and just hold it no matter how often she stands there until she goes down. And once she goes down, just give her all the affection you can. In 24 hours, that little dog, she isn't up on me right now. 24 hours. Reward and punishment works for dogs. It really does. But we try to raise Christian people like dogs. Simple reward and punishment techniques. And it kept many of our people, as one would want to do, at that lowest level of morality. Hmm. Promise them heaven, threaten them with hell. And this is going to create high-minded people? I don't think so. It just doesn't work. But that became so clear to me yesterday when I saw myself all day doing reward and punishment. Amazing. I'll I'll bring her over here. Where are you, Carmela? Here, come here. Come here. (laughs) You'll see her boxer face. Ian wants to see you. Ian wants to see you. Oh, oh, look at that moosh. Cute. Oh, that is fantastic. Oh, she is dear big. So sweet. Yeah, she's big. She's got the body of a a lab, but the face of a boxer. Mm. Or maybe a pit bull. I'm not sure. Where did you you get Carmela from? At the local shelter. Okay, so she was already named Carmela. It was exactly... Six weeks tomorrow that I had to put down my dog of 15 years. So I allowed myself six months of mourning. And I mean that. We mm-hmm. were close. I was finally ready to let another one in the house. So she's already filling the, the gap. Yeah. So not the other one, but she's good. We lost two dogs last year. And just, uh, I, I'll tell you, you know, I, my dad and I had a complicated relationship, but he was a human being. When, but when I lost my dog, Wendell, I uh, literally, I, I was, I mourned more deeply and more powerfully than I did over the loss of my dad. It, it was so profound. You're the tenth person to tell me that, and they always say it as you probably with a little bit of guilt that I shouldn't feel that way, but they mirror you every day. 
so perfectly. <laughs> yeah, no. I, I love them. Well, Richard, I, I want to, again, honor your time. I know how busy you are. I could talk to you for days, but I but the last very quick, just, you could answer this very quickly. Sure, go ahead. Um, you know, there's a whole new generation of Enneagram teachers emerging. Now, I'm an older part of that, maybe new generation, and my my enthusiasm in the last few years has it's given me a whole new purpose, you know, and a whole new sure. sense. Now, I, I I am not I have not turned the Enneagram into a religion. In fact, I'm always talking people off the ledge of the of Enneagram. I call them the Enneagram Taliban. You know, they just they. <laughs> They get hold of this thing and they just, you know, overprivilege it and go crazy with it. Um, but if you were to give a word to the teachers, this new generation of teachers of encouragement and warning, what would it be? Don't be so afraid. I, I'm not saying you should introduce it early at all. But don't be afraid to introduce notions of grace or God. Because otherwise, all you can do is use it as an engineering tool, as a technique, as a formula. What grace does, what any honest notion of God does, is open up the frame for action from other sources, or energy from other sources, that I don't have to do it all. I don't have to make it happen by my soul energy. Once something becomes too formulaic, and the anagram has that temptation. It puts all the energy back into my expert use of this formula. Whereas if you can leave this field of non-knowing, of non-controlling, uh, of allowing, of surrendering, use any of those words, you've just done yourself a great favor. And the reason I was asked to give the keynote at several of the historic uh, Anagram conferences, they told me right up front, they said, because you're not afraid to use the G word, the God word, or the grace word. And most of us can't get away with that in sophisticated American society. For me, God is another name for reality. It's when you give reality a face, a, a personification, an, an interface. And that's perfectly orthodox. Uh, my last book was on the Trinity, so you might recognize yes. Well, that idea of the, the real, right, capital R, the holy real. Yes. Uh, once you say that to people, they, they stop being so afraid of you that you're trying to impose some monarchical male deity on them. And if they only knew, that's not what I'm talking about. Certainly not a monarch, certainly not male, and not any of their historic understandings of a deity, you know? And that's why for me, the the divine dance or the trinity theology is so important that god is much more a flow much more an energy much more a, a verb than a noun and that's orthodox christian theology i can say that to you mm -hmm. but even most clergy don't even know that they preach as if they're talking about a monarch who's sitting on a throne somewhere and is usually pissed off uh, no wonder most of the world has thrown out this notion of god so once I convince that's not what I'm talking about when I talk about God, then a lot of times people can uh, listen with a little more open ears. So I would just encourage Anagram people to find what is their honest notion of God. And if they're allowed by their own conscience or truth 
to use it, don't be afraid to use it. Mm. You're finally doing people a favor. You're not binding them up. You're, in fact, putting them in the biggest possible feel possible. <laughs> uh, reality. Reality. And reality is the greatest ally of God. Yeah, you know, I just, uh, I know I promised to be <laughs> brief, but I can't help myself. Um, I, I think about two things. One's a question for you, but one's a reaction to what you just said, which is, I've come to understand God in my limited mind um, as a, that, that God is a field or an environment. Okay. In, in other words, that, that God is a conscious, aware, personal environment or field in which we live, move, and have our being. Yeah, yeah, yeah. See, that's Trinitarian. Don't don't feel guilty about thinking that way. Yeah. But most Christians, including most bishops, are not Trinitarian. <laughs> mm. So, in in closing, I, I I guess the thing I'd say this letting go theme, which again you brilliantly uh, introduced through your work with twelve steps, uh, sort of exegeting the twelve steps for everybody, and and uh, uh, lots of your other work, uh, your book, letting go, um, uh, centering prayer, practice of meditation, which is so important with the enneagram to work it into the warp and woof, into the bone and marrow or the blood. Uh, I, maybe just a quick word. I mean, you know, just telling people, or or perhaps uh, perhaps disagreeing with me, uh, but I don't think you will. Uh, that 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 is where the work, so much of the work, gets done. In the work of prayer, is that what you say? Well, in prayer, but also of letting go, and also this dismantling of the false self. Oh yeah, yeah. And again, it, that is something that is done to you. You don't do it. Mm-hmm. That is key. And that's why our mystics talk so much about surrender or kenosis, self-emptying. It's not a learning as much as it is an unlearning. As the cloud of unknowing would have said and Dionysius would have said, it's much more an unknowing than a knowing. And I was just reading Meister Eckhart early this morning. My, that guy was brilliant. Oh, yeah. Oh, he says it in, you know, dozens of ways. You, the line you're familiar with is, I pray God to rid me of God, which naturally a dualistic thinker thinks is heresy. He's just pure genius because your notion of God is never adequate. And you've got to get rid of your present one to, to allow God to be bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And, the, you know, we've created Western atheism and agnosticism by peddling this puny, puny, usually violence image of God. Mm-hmm. It's heartbreaking. Really. Yeah, it is. Well, Richard, again, I'm honored. Our, our people are enriched, and you have been such a source of, um, since the late 1980s, when I started to listen to those cassettes. You're too humble. And uh, when I first came upon uh, the Enneagram, uh, that the, your book at, at a Catholic retreat center in Denver, Colorado, and uh, that was uh, almost uh, not unlike my experience with the chapter five of New Seeds of Contemplation, where it, it, it helped me to see yeah. uh, and have ears to hear something new that uh, maybe uh, helped me come to myself. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm not there as much as I'd like to be by a long shot. I'm not either. I'm not either. But yeah. little by little. 
Uh, no. and, but with the help of really great sages like yourself. And so thank you so much. Most welcome. I'm honored to talk with you. Thank you. I hope the book enjoys much success. It deserves it. Thank you thank so much. Peace. Peace, brother. Well, I trust that all of you enjoyed my conversation with Richard Rohr as much as I did. Before I go, I just want to alert you to a couple of really cool things. One is you can go to cac.org. That's the Center for Action and Contemplation. And I want to encourage you to sign up for Richard's daily email that goes out with all kinds of wonderful wisdom and thoughts from him. Also, I want to encourage you to buy a few of Richard's books. I'll just tell you a bunch of my favorites. One is Everything Belongs, The Naked Now is another one. Breathing Underwater is fantastic. Falling Upward, if you've not read it, it's a must read. And Immortal Diamond is another one of my favorites of Richard's. Well, that's all I have for today. If you enjoyed today's show or have suggestions for future episodes and guests, I'd love to hear from you. Go to our website, typologypodcast.com and submit a question or comment for me. And I promise you, I do read them personally. I read them personally. While you're on typologypodcast.com, you can also download a free chapter from my book called Finding Your Type or download and listen to the episode titled Introducing Typology and the Enneagram and take my introductory Enneagram assessment as well. Finally, if you like this show, go subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts and leave us a review. It's a great way to help others find out about the show. Until next week, my friends, remember the words of the great Oscar Wilde. Be yourself. Everybody else is already taken. Be well, everybody. <laughs>